Welcome, everybody. Welcome to our weekly Bible study. It's good to have everybody with us. Uh, Let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this book and for the stories that you tell us and for all that you have to teach us. We look forward to getting to know you better. Lord, open our eyes and our minds and our hearts to your spirit that we might be guided and led by you. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, again, welcome everyone. This week we're going to start um, we're going to start in Job, the book of Job, chapter 1, verse 1. And we may continue in Job after this week. I have not decided what exactly I want to do after this week. I've been reading Job all week, and it, it's a bit intimidating to think about trying to do a Bible study through the book of Job, especially in the old King James. It's, I mean, I'll probably read in the new King James this coming week, and see if that helps, and, um, and I'll pray about where to go from this week forward. Um, but I want to start with a question, uh, a three-part question, I guess. Is Job a poem? Is it a myth? Or does it recount an historical event? Okay, well, we know it's not a myth because it's in the Bible, so that goes out the door. Uh, but is it a poem that's just meant to be taken as poetry, or does it record an historical event? Well, Job is definitely written primarily in poetic language. But the Holy Spirit confirms that Job is a literal historic prophet. If you want to go to Ezekiel chapter 14, just go ahead in your Bible to the book of Ezekiel chapter 14. Ezekiel 14, 14. Where we, and, and in Ezekiel 14, God is declaring His anger against the sins of Israel in the land. He said, he's, to, he's mad at them for having polluted the land with their sin. And He says to them, quote, the, If these three men, though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in the land, they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord God. He's saying, I'm going to destroy you people. And even... <laughs> And even if Daniel, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were here, they'd only save themselves by their righteousness. And, and then in the New Testament, if you want to go to James chapter 5, up in the New Testament to the book of James chapter 5, where we read in... James 5, starting in verse 10, the Apostle James says in James 5.10, Take my brethren the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job. So here's a New Testament apostle talking about Job as an historical person. So there are two Witnesses that declare that any assertion that Job was not an actual person is unbiblical. But is everything written in Job to be taken as literal history? Or a better way to put it, is every word we read in Job inspired by the Holy Spirit and meant to teach us truth? And it's a, difficult, it's a difficult question to put because everything in the Bible was recorded there by the Holy Spirit in order to teach us the truth. 
But is every word of this the truth? Because it's all certainly recorded in the Bible by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But is it all the word of truth meant as moral guidance to us? And how can we sort out everything that is to be taken as godly instruction? And if perhaps there are words, phrases, and accounts, and opinions that are just the word of men, the words of men in, in, recorded by the Holy Spirit in order to capture the whole picture of the whole event. And figuring that out is a tall order. And that's why the book of Job is, is a bit intimidating. Now, Job may very well be the oldest written book of the Bible. That is the tradition. That's the oldest book that we have. And I believe that the Scripture places the story of Job in the chronology and geography of world history in a specific way. So now you know how I feel. Not only is Job a historical person, this is, there are events in the book of Job. All of the events in the book of Job are historical events. Because the Bible places them in the land of Uz, and it names some characters that give us a clue as to the um, chronology. If you go to Job chapter 1, verse 1, we'll start in Job 1, 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Okay, so let's stop right there, because in the Bible, there's a certain formula for introducing historical narratives. And it's used quite often, and it's only used to introduce historical narratives. And it's this formula. There was a man of so-and-so whose name was so-and-so. So it gives a geographic reference and then a name. And so if you compare this, by the way, I'll, I'll prove this to you. Judges 17, if you want to go backwards in your Bible to the book of Judges, before Samuel, Judges... Chapter 17, Judges 17, and verse 1, as a matter of fact. Judges 17, 1 says, there was, a man, <clears throat> there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And then the book of Judges goes on to tell us about the story of this man Micah. Now, if you want to go to 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, the very next book, make it easy for you to find. 1 Samuel 1, verse 1. Now there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah. And then the book of Samuel starts to lay out the story of Elkanah and other characters. So it's the the formula for the introduction of an historical narrative with real historical characters. And so, this biblical introduction formula we see in Job of a geographic designation and then a man is a third witness that I'll add to the two verses I gave you that uh, witnesses to Job's literal historicity. So there's your third witness. Let, uh, let all things be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. So to place Job in historical chronology and location, we can see that the story of Job is set in the land of Uz. Where is Uz? 
Is there anywhere in the Bible we can find out where ooze is? Well, in Lamentations chapter 4, if you want to go forward in your Bible to the book of Lamentations, chapter 4, right before Ezekiel, I think. Lamentations chapter 4. Lamentations 4.21 Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, that dwellest in the land of Uz. Well, we know that Edom is east of Canaan. And so the land of Uz is in Moab, according to Lamentations 4.21. And so that gives us geography. What about the timing? Well, the timing we can get from the naming of the character Eliphaz. He's called a Temanite. In, in Job chapter 4, verse 1, we're introduced to Eliphaz the Temanite. And so, since Eliphaz is called a Temanite, I don't think this is the Eliphaz that was the father of Teman listed in the descendants of Esau in, in Genesis, although that's not impossible. But it's more likely that he would be a descendant of Teman, being called a Temanite. Um, perhaps a son or a grandson of Teman, named after his grandfather or great-grandfather Eliphaz. And this would put the story of Job one, two, maybe three generations after Jacob, right? And, and we also read that Bildad was a Shuhite. Well, Shua was one of Abraham's sons, late in life by his Egyptian concubine Keturah after Sarah died. He was one of Abraham's sons who was, we're told he was sent to the east country in Genesis 25 after, after Abraham established his legacy with, through Isaac, he sent his other sons to the east, which would make sense that Shua ended up in the east and Bildad, one of Job's friends, is called Shuhite. And so remember that um, Moses, Moses was only four generations from Jacob. Remember, Jacob begot Levi, Levi begot Kohath, Kohath begot Amram, Amram begot Moses. Well, Esau was Jacob's brother, and Esau was only 13 years older than Jacob. And Esau begot Eliphaz, Eliphaz begot Teman. And then Teman, or his son, or his grandson, begot another Eliphaz, who was a Temanite, and appears in Job. So the story is probably recorded, or the story is probably giving us a history of events around the time Israel went down into Egypt, or while they were in Egypt. Oh, you're right. Who was 13 years older? That was, uh, that was Isaac. Isaac and Ishmael. Yes. That was a test. I was testing everyone in the room to see if you <laughs> caught the fact that... Uh, so I was trying to establish that Esau and Isaac weren't very far apart in age. And, that, and that's been very well established now. That's right. They were twins. It's easy to get those brothers who were switched. It's easy to get them mixed up sometimes. All right. Thank you. For that correction. So, um, and by the way, when you read the genealogies of the sons of Esau in Genesis 36, you'll see one of them is named 
Uz. And we're told that Job lived in the land of Uz. And one of the kings in the genealogies is a man named Jobab. And that very well may be the Job in the story here in the book of Job. Maybe that king Jobab. And we'll see that Job was a very great man. And he's called a, a king in the genealogy. Um, it's also interesting to compare the genealogy of Esau with the genealogy of Shem back in Genesis 10, because it seems that Esau's descendants in the genealogy in Genesis 36, they purposely appropriated names from that older genealogy of Shem, and I think this could be an indication that there were believers in the east, apart from the line of Isaac, in the east, in Edom and Moab. And we know there was at least one, and that was Job, and that's where we're going to begin. And so, it's, it's also interesting that the book of the Hebrew Bible, thought to be the oldest book, is, is from a land outside of Israel. It's set in a land outside of Israel before the law was given. Yet the story is about a man who believed God, a believer who found favor in God's sight by faith. And we'll return to this fact, I'm sure. All right, now let's go to Job chapter 1. Um, and we'll read verse 1 again. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God. <clears throat> Excuse me, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses and a very great household. So this man, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons went and feasted in their houses every one his day and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. So there's our introduction to the character Job. So what does it mean that Job was perfect and upright? Well, if you want to know the meaning of a term in the Bible, the best place to look is Wikipedia. No, it's not Wikipedia. The best place to look is in the Bible. And so let's look at the term perfect in the Bible. Um, Genesis 6-9, if you want to turn there. Genesis 6-9 is where we find the first biblical occurrence of the word perfect. Genesis 6, chapter 9. I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, where we read, Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. Now, in the previous section of Genesis there, we were told that God had decided to destroy man because, we read in verse 5, because the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then we're told in the passage immediately following God's declaration here that Noah was perfect in his generations. In verse 12, we read, 
God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. So it appears Noah's perfection was not that he was sinless. The scripture tells us that death reigned from Adam onward and that all men have sinned, according to Romans 3.23. We know that. It appears that Noah's flesh was perfect in that it was not corrupted by whatever it was that corrupted all flesh that we read about in Genesis 6.12. And that likely had to do with the angels called the sons of God in, in Genesis 6 that corrupted the bloodline of the woman. The woman, her bloodline was corrupted in Satan's effort to prevent the coming of the man that God told Satan would bruise his head. Satan took that very seriously. And the fallen angels tried to corrupt the woman's bloodline. And so the term perfect in Noah's case is an indication of genetic or fleshly purity. Uh, or, or at least absence of that particular corruption. Now, further on the word perfect, go to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17, verse 21. Genesis 17 and verse... I'm sorry, Genesis 17, verse 1. Genesis 17, 1. And when Abraham was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abraham, the Lord appeared to Abram, and said unto him, I am the Almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. Now, earlier we read in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. So it appears by the scripture that Abraham's perfection began with his being declared righteous for his belief. And in, Genesis, and in Genesis 17, God proceeded to change Abram and Sarai's names by actually inserting the sound of his own name into their names and then making an eternal covenant with Abraham. So the term perfect in this, concept, in, in this, in this context also has to do with being justified by God. Um, we also read, so genetically perfect, their flesh is free of the corruption of the satanic rebellion, uh, justified by God, declared righteous. And then later in the law, we read in Leviticus chapter 22, if you want to go there, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 22 and verse 21, Leviticus 22, 21, and whoever offereth a sacrifice of peace offerings unto the Lord to accomplish his vow or a freewill offering in beeves or sheep, it shall be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no blemish therein. And so we understand that perfect also has to do with an offering, being acceptable to God. So, Job wasn't sinless, but he was perfect and upright, meaning 
He was genetically pure. He was justified by God. And his worship was accepted by God. Acceptable and accepted. So this is a major biblical lesson, by the way. It says that he was pure and up, he was perfect and upright, and he eschewed evil. Right? He he feared God and eschewed evil. Eschewed. Who uses that word? It's an old King James word. That means he purposely avoided evil. He purposely sought not to want or participate in evil. He did that on purpose. He eschewed it. He avoided it. And so there's, there's only one way a man desires to truly eschew evil. And the only way that happens is by faith in God. The only way you cannot want evil and not want to participate in evil and not desire to do evil is to is by faith in God. That's the only way. And you know, people wonder how it is, how is it we're not never going to sin in the afterlife? How is that going to happen? Well, the scripture indicates that it'll be because we will not want to. We will not want to sin in the afterlife. And by the way, one doesn't have to wait for the afterlife to learn to not want to sin. We can start now by having faith in Jesus Christ and walking after His Spirit. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 5, Paul says, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. And, and so even the sinner, even the sinner has times when he no longer desires a certain sin. Or, or he doesn't desire any more of that specific sin. Even a sinner has that. But a righteous man who believes God can experience the absence of desire for all sin. The absence, for the, the absence of the desire for any sin at all. And the Christian life is a process of learning and perfecting this sinless desire. The better we get to know God and the, and the more we read His Word and the more we pray and commune with Him. You know, God said to Abraham, walk before me and be thou perfect. That goes for us as much as it did for Abraham. And the longer we walk closer with Him, and the more we commune with Him and pray and talk with Him and read His Word, the more perfected we become. And we do that by studying His Word and praying and worshiping Him in spirit and truth. That means we yield to His Spirit and we desire to know the truth. And if you desire to know the truth, while you're desiring to know the truth, it's not possible to desire sin. If you are worshiping in spirit and truth, then you really want to know. So that is the Christian life, or that's a big part of it, I think. And, and we'll learn more about that, actually, even here in Job. So let's go back to Job. We'll go back to the book of Job. 
And we're going to be in... Uh, see, I can't see that far in the light. I have, to, I have to grab the book, and I have to pull it up a lot closer to me. <laughs> Here we go. All right, so Job chapter 1. And let's see, where did we leave off here? Job chapter 1, we'll start in verse 6. Now there was a day, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. <clears throat> and the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down in it. Okay, so why is Satan allowed to appear before God? Has anyone ever wondered that when you read the book of Job? Why is that? And why is he allowed to walk up and down on the earth? Well, this passage to me, when you read this, it says, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. This, this, this passage to me, resembles a military muster. Anybody familiar with a military muster? Muster, not mustard. A military muster was set at a certain time, and it was a regular thing, and you had to be there. And if you weren't there, you were in trouble. You had to make muster. And that's what this reminds me of. It reminds me of a military muster. <clears throat> and... Satan was there at this, uh, at this military muster. He made muster because he had to be there. So even though Satan has fallen and become an adversary of God, it appears that he's still a member of the heavenly host. And he's apparently either allowed or required to still make muster. He still has to present himself before the Lord every, whenever it is. Satan appears to be a member of the authority structure established by God over the heavens and over the earth. But why didn't God kick Satan out of that position if Satan had rebelled? Why hadn't he kicked him out of any position of authority? And, and, and why is Satan's presence on the earth and at the heavenly muster, why is that allowed at all? Well, remember the prophecy in Genesis 3, 14, when God said to the serpent, that's Satan, by the way, God said, because you have done this, he sinned, he deceived the woman, he lied. Because you have done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and you shall bruise his heel. So by that prophecy, we're told that Satan is going to continue to live. Right? Because the bruising of the head, that's God says he will. So Satan's going to be allowed to live and he's going to continue to interact with humanity because there can be no enmity where there is no interaction. 
So that's the prophecy. But why is this? Why is this the case? Because people think, well, why doesn't God just smash him and be done? Well, it seems from the Scripture that Satan's continued presence is a result of the necessary conditions for God to defeat him and to redeem a people out for himself and to reconcile the heaven and the earth to himself again. God is not a magician. He couldn't simply wink or snap his fingers and make it all better. He couldn't simply banish Satan or annihilate him or just restrain him. He had to defeat him. And that required going to war with him. And that requires Satan maintaining a presence in the world. And apparently in the heavenlies too and in the authority structure. So I want to run through a scriptural history of God's war with Satan. And hopefully this will help us understand the situation more clearly. So this is where I want to see if you can keep up with me, okay? All right, we're going to go to Zechariah chapter 2. Zechariah, one of the minor prophets. Almost at the end. Is it? Yeah, Zechariah chapter 2, verse 11. So this is the vision that Zechariah is being given by God, and he says, And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto thee. And the Lord shall inherit Judah, his portion in the holy land, and shall choose Jerusalem again. Be silent, O all flesh, before the Lord, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. So we know that, so we know from Genesis that God intends to have a lot of people, and He intended that from the beginning. That's why He gave them the commandment to be fruitful and multiply. He intended to have a lot of people, and He's going to get them. But He's not going to get them without a fight. And the only alternative to letting Satan's rebellion unfold toward His ultimate defeat, the only alternative to that would have been to just destroy everything. And God decided not to just destroy everything. And perhaps that wasn't even possible. Perhaps it wasn't even possible for God to just say, you know what, I'm just going to destroy everything. Let's go to Psalm number 109. Psalm 109. We're going to go to Psalm 109, and we'll start in verse 4. God is speaking of wicked men, okay? So we're chronicling now God's war against Satan. Psalm 109.4 For my love, they are my adversaries, but I give myself unto prayer. And they have rewarded me evil for good, and hatred for my love. Set thou a wicked man over them, and let Satan stand at his right hand. When he shall be judged, let him be condemned. 
and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few and let another take his office. So the scripture indicates that Satan was created to fulfill an office. And while he was in that office, he rebelled. And God did not, or perhaps he cannot, just annihilate the office holder. He must defeat him and establish someone else in his office. God's not a magician. Let's go to Luke in the New Testament. Luke verse 10. Matthew, Mark, Luke. We'll go to Luke verse, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 10. Luke 10, 17. uh, Jesus had sent out the 70 to witness to Israel. Uh, Luke 10, starting in 17, and the, seven, <clears throat> and the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Here Jesus seems to be, cro- seems to be quoting Revelation 12, 9, um, even though... Uh, Revelation 12.9 hadn't been written yet. Revelation 12.9 goes, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So, and Jesus said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. So, Revelation wasn't written at the time Jesus said this. But that doesn't mean Jesus didn't already know it. Or or that Revelation 12 may describe some events Jesus had witnessed beforehand. And so we'll look at this further as we go on. I'm not sure if we'll get to it tonight, but we will look at Revelation 12 again. Let's go now, jump up to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. Starting in verse 31, Luke 22, 31, and the Lord said, is that right? Luke 22, 31, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, Strengthen thy brethren. So here, Jesus is performing in his earthly ministry what God has been doing since Genesis. Witnessing to men so that they can be converted and they can witness to others. God has permitted creation to exist, even in corruption, with his adversary present, and still active. Why? In order to save people out of it for himself and for his glorious name. Now let's go to Acts chapter 26. Acts 26. 
Verse 18, Acts 26, 18. And Jesus said, Jesus says to Paul, right? This is when Jesus is sending Paul out to the Gentiles. He says he's sending them to the Gentiles to, quote, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. So here, Jesus is taking the ministry he's established through Israel earlier when he told Peter, right? I've prayed for you, be converted, strengthen your brethren. Now Jesus is taking that ministry and he's going to take it out to the whole world in a whole new way through Paul. And I'm convinced that this calling out of Paul and taking the gospel to the Gentiles, I'm convinced that's something that Satan never saw coming. He didn't know that was going to happen. It caught him by surprise. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in verse 5. 1 Corinthians 5, 5. <clears throat> So in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, Paul is telling believers how to deal with a brother who has fallen into unrepentant sin. And Paul says, Deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And so, so some might think that Satan is a, a necessary player. And, and that Satan and his rebellion is actually a part of God's plan to show his power and his ability to forgive and his love. And it's all a part of God's plan of redemption. Some even believe that God appointed Satan to such an office as the adversary, that God eternally made Satan as the adversary. But the scriptures indicate that Satan is... Satan is merely a player, not because God needed him or made him as such, as an adversary, but because God has determined to defeat the rebellion by building his church. So Satan is not necessary or ordained. He simply is the adversary by his own doing, by what he did. Because you have done this, you are cursed. I will put enmity between you and the seed, your seed and the woman's seed, between you and the woman. He is the adversary simply because of what he did. He's present in God's operation to ultimately completely defeat him, but it wasn't ordained from the beginning. Now let's go to 2 Corinthians 12. 2 Corinthians Chapter 12, verse 7, starting in verse 7, Paul writes, <clears throat> what did I say? 2 Corinthians ah, 12, 7. Okay, so Paul's talking about the fact that he's been given this ministry, but God's not going to allow him to get puffed up 
because, Paul writes, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. So by this verse, we can infer that Satan retains some authority even in the modern age. A messenger of Satan was allowed to buffet Paul. So not only did Satan have liberty to walk up and down on the face of the earth in the days of Job, not only did he have the ability to lead a rebellion in which the fallen angels tried to corrupt the bloodline, apparently he still maintains some authority and some ability to interfere with things even into the time of what I would call the modern church, the time of Paul. We'll come back to that verse because I know that's a bit controversial. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul is speaking here of the Antichrist. And he says, Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and lying signs and wonders. Paul's describing a future event that involves the Antichrist. So Satan's authority and influence according to Scripture, is going to run its course through through our time and beyond in in order to be defeated for all time. It, It just appears from the scriptural record that God has decided to allow this to run its course in order to ultimately defeat it. And and I assert that they that may be a necessity. There may not be another way. Let's go to Revelations chapter, Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, verse 13. <clears throat> where Paul is writing to the church of... <clears throat> Let's see, I said 2.13, right? So Paul's writing to the church at Pergamos. I'm sorry, uh, uh, actually this is Jesus Christ uh, speaking to the church at Pergamos. <clears throat> and he says, quote, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. So here we are at the end of the age and Satan's in a seat. Well, what is a seat? A seat is a symbol of governing authority. So Satan is... We can see through the scriptural record that Satan maintains some authority and some ability to interact and even some uh, uh, position of governmental authority even to the end of the age. Let's go to Revelation 12. Revelation chapter 12, starting in verse 7. Revelation 12, 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So, is this referring to the time of the end? Or is this referring to what's been going on for almost 6,000 years? This 
And I'm talking specifically about the part Satan was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Remember, we read in Job, Satan was walking up and down on the face of the earth just before he presented himself at muster to God in the book of Job. And so... I think that this section in Revelation 12 describes a number of events. Events that happened and events that will happen. Perhaps this passage refers to the past and the future, both the history and the destiny of Satan. He was cast out into the earth and his angels with him. But at the time of the end, here... Here in the midst of the 70th week of Daniel, in the, in the tribulation, their place, neither was their place found anymore in heaven. So we'll come back to this verse, because this is a difficult verse. But let's go to Revelation 20, and let's just close out this review of God's war against Satan. Revelation 20 Verse 10, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. So according to the scriptural record, the final defeat of the satanic rebellion apparently requires the defeat of a threefold manifestation of that rebellion, the false trinity, the false father, the false son, the false Holy Spirit, have to all be defeated. The devil is cast in the lake of fire where who? The beast and the false prophet are. The false threefold manifestation is defeated in order for God to ultimately save mankind for real. Not for play, wink, snap my fingers and pretend everything's okay, but for real. The actual defeat of the threefold manifestation of the satanic rebellion. In order for God to for real reconcile back to himself everything that is in heaven and in earth. Now, if you followed our study for any length of time, I hope it's clear that we believe there are two distinct groups of people who will be saved out of this world for the Lord. First, there are grace believers saved purely by faith in Jesus Christ. I'm sorry saved purely by the faith of Jesus Christ. And second, there's Israel, saved by that same faith, but according to the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic law. Israel is going to inherit the earth forever. How do I know this? How can I just say this? Well, Genesis 17, 8. In Genesis 17, 8, God said to Abraham, And I will... Give unto thee, Abraham, and thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God gave Abraham the token of the covenant. In Genesis 17.10, he says, This is my covenant, which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. So God gave Abraham the promise the covenant, and he confirmed that covenant with Moses. Remember in Exodus 4, when, when, when the Lord demanded Moses circumcise his own son and was going to kill Moses because he hadn't done it. And then we read in Exodus, 
19, as the law is being given. Exodus 19, 5. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and holy nation. These are the words which you, Moses, shall speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came and he called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So the covenant was confirmed. And so from there, in fact, we can look back even to Exodus 12, um, all the way to the end of the book of Exodus, God gives Israel covenants that they should keep, including the Ten Commandments. They're, they're the most famous. But He gave many other laws, numbering in the hundreds. Jewish tradition teaches that the Torah contains 613 laws called the mitzvot. So you can go online, you can find a list of the mitzvot, and you can read through and decide for yourself if that number is accurate, 613. If it is, it's kind of ironic. But suffice it to say, from Exodus 12 to Exodus 40, God gave Israel hundreds of laws, including the reiteration of circumcision as the primary token of the covenant. He also gave them the Sabbath, right? And he said in Exodus 31, 16, he said, Wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. So add to this God's promise to Abraham regarding the, his everlasting possession of the land. And it's clear that God intends Israel, believing Israel, to inherit the land, the holy land, the whole earth forever. In, in fact, in Revelation, we read about the new Jerusalem on the new earth. In Revelation 21, 2, God's... Uh, God gives a vision to John, and John says, I, John, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. And God Himself shall be with them and be their God. So the destiny of Israel and Jerusalem and the land promised to them is laid out fairly clearly in the Scripture. Israel is going to inherit the land forever. But most Christians today, they understand that we're not Israel. Now, some mistakenly think that we replaced Israel, but even they acknowledge that the church of today is, is something different from Israel because they don't command circumcision, at least none of the ones I know of. Um, they might command tithing, but not circumcision. So most Christians understand that the church is different than Israel. Now, according to the gospel given, by, given to Paul by Jesus Christ, the modern church is called the body of Christ. Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4.11, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the unity of faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That body, having been described, by the way, before in, in Ephesians chapter 3, right? God gave these men for the edifying of the body of Christ. In Ephesians 3, 1, 
Paul says, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given to me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby, when you read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister. And we'll read a little bit more about Paul's specific gospel in a minute. The body of Christ has been being built since Paul was called to go to the Gentiles, apart from the Jewish tradition. And when Paul was called to offer salvation to the heathens, by faith, apart from the law. And we know that by Galatians 5. Starting in verse 2, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he's a debtor to the whole law. Christ has become of no effect to you. Well, that's a lot different than you have to be circumcised, which we read back in Exodus and all through the Old Testament. But Paul says, for we through faith, I'm sorry, for we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith, which worketh by love. So if Israel is identified clearly by the covenant of circumcision and there to inherit the land and dwell with God and his tabernacle in the new Jerusalem on the new earth forever, then what is the destiny of the body of believers to which we belong? Where are we going to be? Are we going to be with Israel in, in the New Jerusalem forever? Or is there a different destiny for us? Is there a different destiny for this body of believers to which we belong? And does the Bible tell us anything about our destiny? Let's take a look. So, as we've covered before, consider the presentation in Scripture that God created positions of authority in the heavenlies. So, let's go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, verse 16. Colossians 1, verse 16. For by Him, that's Jesus Christ, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. So this implies that there were things invisible, principalities, thrones, dominions, and powers in heaven by Jesus Christ. This implication is that there were governmental authorities created in the heavenlies that we would recognize as political authorities, governmental authorities on earth, and all of these principalities, powers, thrones, they were created by Jesus Christ. And Paul states that his preaching, if we want to go to Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9, Paul says his preaching is intended to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now, 
unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And consider the scriptural evidence that those positions are now occupied by the angelic host. And along with the rest of the universal structure, they've been corrupted by sin and the satanic rebellion. The heavenly offices created by Christ are currently occupied by fallen angels. Go to Daniel chapter 10, verse 13. How could you say that, Doug? We'll go to Daniel 10, 13. We read Gabriel telling Daniel, Daniel, from the moment you started to pray, I was dispatched to come to you, right? But, but, Gabriel says, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one in 20 days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. So, in Daniel, we read that there are these, these spiritual authorities that are fighting with one another and even able to prevent Daniel. And the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, by the way. I told you we'd come back to this one. 2 Corinthians 12, in verse 7, Paul says, There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Now, many interpret this to be a literal fleshly infirmity. But Paul here calls this thorn a messenger of Satan, which that sounds to me like a fallen angel. And like they've always done, this fallen angel was interfering with Paul's ministry, similar to the way the prince of the kingdom of Persia interfered with Daniel. Now, Scripture indicates that Jesus Christ, by His resurrection, He won a victory over the fallen rulers of the heavenlies. If we go to Colossians chapter 2, just a couple... Ephesians, Colossians... Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 15, Paul tells us that Jesus Christ, having spoiled principalities and powers, made a show of them openly triumphing over them in it. So Jesus won a victory at the resurrection, but that victory is not yet complete, and we know that according to Ephesians chapter 6. If we go back to Ephesians 6, in verse 12, Paul tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers and against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So the victory is not complete, but the victory will be complete. Go to Colossians, back to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1.20, where Paul says, And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. So there are things in heaven, Paul just told us, that are as of yet unreconciled to him. Meaning, he, Jesus Christ has not yet taken full possession of the principalities and the powers that he created in the heavenlies. The scripture indicates that these things in heaven that Paul just talked about, these are those principalities, those positions of authority created by Christ, 
They were initially administered by that anointed cherub and his host of, of angels in righteousness. That's how they were originally, but now they've fallen, and those, so those positions are occupied and administered by Satan and his fallen angels. And Paul's message about struggling against spiritual wickedness in high places so that message is not given to Israel. Israel's given a message about inheriting the earth. Paul's message about struggling against spiritual wickedness in high places is given to the body of Christ, to all of us in the modern church. It appears that at this time in history, God has chosen to call out a people by faith from among Jews and Gentiles equally, irrespective, irrespective of your ethnicity, a people who will reign with Him forever, not in the earth, but in the heavenlies. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, where Paul tells us, <clears throat> um, 2 Timothy 2, 12, Paul says, If we suffer, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. So Paul just told us we're going to reign with Him, with Jesus Christ. Now, And, and then if, if we deny Him, He'll deny us. Paul's not saying Christ will deny our salvation. We know from 1 Corinthians 3.14 that at the judgment seat of Christ, we're told, we're told in 1 Corinthians 3.14, If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So as Paul goes on to describe those who will reign with Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, back in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, Paul says, Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? So we shall reign with Him. We shall judge the world. We shall judge angels. Now go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, in Christ. Why do Christians all think we're going to heaven? Because the Bible says we're going to heaven, in heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 2, if you're already in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 where Paul tells us that He has raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house made not with hands, eternal in the heavens. And Paul tells us that we're striving toward the judgment seat of Christ. 
for, for a reward. And Paul says, and every man in 1 Corinthians 9, 25, Paul says, and every man that strives for the mastery is tempered in all things. Now they do it to, an obtain, to obtain a corruptible crown. He's talking about athletes competing to win a trophy. But he says they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible so Paul says we're going to reign with him in heavenly places and we're going to be given an incorruptible crown. Well, what does a crown represent? Does anybody know why someone wears a crown? Why, why would someone wear a crown? Who wears the crown? The king, the ruler. That's right. So the crown represents government authority. And there are indications in Scripture that the crowns we receive will be related to our work in the body, and especially to those we read, uh, those that we lead to the Lord. Go to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Philippians 4, 1, Paul says, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, stand fast in the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Paul says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming? For you are our glory and joy. 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul says, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me in that day. Finally, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 40. Paul says, There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun and another of the moon and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. So we will reign with Christ eternally, forever, we will judge even angels. We will be given crowns. We will be given a spiritual body. Not to dwell on the earth. A spiritual body to occupy a position in heaven. And so, going back to Job, the very first few verses of the book of Job, perhaps the earliest book written in Scripture, we are given... By this appearance of Satan before the Lord in the heavenlies, we're given an insight into the ultimate destiny of the body of Christ. We are going to reign with Christ in positions of authority that were usurped by Satan. So we're not just being saved for the sake of being saved. God wants to be with us forever. He wants to be our friend. But more than that, He wants to be our Lord. And He's going to be our Lord in authority and in position. And 
we will be given positions. And that's why we need to let the church know that salvation is just the first step. It's just the first step on our journey toward our eternal destiny. And, and, and we, as members of the body of Christ, as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to establish our testimony on the earth in order to obtain a reward in heaven. We're already going to get salvation. That goes without saying. But what about, what about after that? What are you going to get? Well, that depends on what you do here. That's the work that's going to be judged, I'm convinced, at the judgment seat of Christ, where we read in 1 Corinthians 3, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer thereupon. I'm sorry, he shall suffer a loss, but he himself shall be saved yet so as by fire. And so our message to the believer today, to the church today, is do you want to achieve, do you want to achieve a desire that is free of sin? All desires free of sin. Do you want that? Do you want to learn how to walk with the Lord? Do you want to worship the Lord in spirit and truth? If you worship the Lord in spirit and truth, you'll preach the gospel and you'll lead some to the Lord. You will, because the gospel is way more powerful than you are. And you'll learn to be more like Him. You'll be conformed to the image of His Son. What does God need if God has a structure that He's entrusted to Jesus Christ, this heavenly authority? What does He need to be under Him in that authority? Who does Jesus need? He needs people who are like Him. And so that's what we're doing on earth, is we are walking in faith, worshiping in spirit and truth so that we might be conformed to His image so that He can use us later in important things that are going to be happening on into eternity. And everyone you lead to the Lord is compared to gold, silver, and precious stone, something that fire can't consume, something that's eternal, something that you'll wear like a crown because the more people you lead to the Lord, the more authority Jesus will be able to entrust you with in eternity. And the more gold, silver, and precious stone you have, the better position you'll be given in heaven. So that's, we've made it uh, through Job, I think, uh, seven, cha- seven verses through Job. So that's our study on Job, Satan, and the destiny of man. At least the destiny of believing man. We know the destiny of unbelieving man. And so, Lord willing, we'll continue next week, either here or in the heavenlies, because I think we'll we'll study this book. I think we'll study this book forever. And I think there's a lot more of this book up there. I mean, we have this, but there's a lot more, because God kept track of everything, and it's all going to be there. And so... Condition yourself to desire that while you're on the earth.
so that you'll do better in heaven. And, and we'll continue next week, Lord willing. Until then, may the grace of God go with you. And may the peace of Jesus Christ be upon you. Lord, we thank you again for your word, for this book of Job. Lord, I just ask that you'd help me to understand and to uh, rightly present your word to your church, <clears throat> to the people who will be with you forever. And just thank you for that opportunity. And just pray your blessings down upon us, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.